The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. But we've done pretty well without our tricorders, EM converters, and comlinks, haven't we? After all, the human body is a powerful tool. We can plow the crops, harvest the fields, construct the walls that we need for protection against the wilderness, weave the clothes that we need to stay warm. In a way, we've rediscovered what man is capable of without technology. It hasn't been easy. We've had some bitter winters, and we've lost some dear friends. But we're very proud of what we've accomplished here. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 21st, 2016. I'm Bob Met. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5.11 Omegahertz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Boy, did you notice the inherent contradiction in that woman's description of living with nature, Robert? <laughs> it was more like dying with nature. Oh. She even mentioned that a few of us may have died. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was irrational in the extreme. Something I understand you'll be addressing in a moment, Robert. But in the second half of our show today, I will be responding to a profound question posed by one of our listeners, Murray, who also happens to be a supporter of the show by becoming a financial donor to our efforts about the very essence of what is truth and how do we know the truth when we see it? You know, for that matter, how do you know that anything I'm saying on this show is true or how do I know that that it's true? Well, because of the title of the show? Yeah, well, uh, there you go. Just (laughs) right? Or is it even possible to know the truth? From Plato to Aristotle to Murray and Robert and myself, we'll be hopefully addressing these eternal dilemmas in a way that will, at the very least, point you in the right direction and at best actually answer the question with a great deal of certainty. But first, don't forget, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5.110 MHz, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Well, I'm going to bounce right off of that clip that opened up the show, Bob, by... (laughs) By letting you know that I think there is a resurgence in that kind of attitude of going back to nature, the sort of hippie culture from the 60s and 70s that um, we sort of experienced peripherally here in uh, in Canada, but was much more prevalent in the United States, where it's a lot warmer to be able to have a hippie type of commune back to nature culture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, this hippie culture um, mm. is defined or was defined more not by what hippies were running to, but what they were running away from. Interesting. It was a rejection of modernity, a technology beyond that which was required for subsistence living, capitalism and its concomitant respect for individual rights. It was a rejection of reason with nature taking on the role of a deity, a god. Faith replaced logic. Drug-induced psychedelic experiences replaced the senses as the primary input for knowledge. Many communes were started by veterans of uh, war, running away from a society which conscripted them into years of violence and death. And I'm not just talking about the Vietnam War, but also the Second World War. Their um, reaction 
was an overreaction. Rather than fight the political cause of the war and the, the political law of conscription, they rejected anything to do with that society, the same society which put them in the situation of violence. They no doubt felt impotent, both politically and intellectually. They lacked the physical means to effect change, and they lacked the proper philosophic basis necessary to combat an improper foreign policy and a morally bankrupt government. Hippie communes were the equivalent of a child running away from his parents and hiding under his bed covers. While most of the communes of the 60s and 70s died out in the 80s, there seems to be a resurgence manifest primarily to these days in the Wicca religion. While this polytheistic neo-paganism has been around since the 1940s, this is the Wicca culture I'm talking about, its popularity has grown just recently. Now, like the hippie culture, which granted prominence, um, which gained prominence rather before um, the Wicca religion, um, the Wicca religion is also a rejection of Western culture and Western values. The so-called back-to-nature Wicca hippie movements and their ilk have political counterparts as well. The rejection of the individual in favor of the group, tribe, or commune is part and parcel of communism and fascism. Well, there are so many variants, how can you even keep track of them all? Of course, yeah. Um, the rejection of the West goes hand in hand with um, embracing of Eastern philosophies, which historically have been more tribal and socialistic. The looser mores and anything goes attitudes are associated with anarchistic and libertarian movements. So there is a political uh, facet, if you will, mm -hmm. of the hippie Wicca back to nature culture. And it can't be ignored. It's political. The economic benefits of capitalism also rejected in favor of shared property, communal ownership, and a rejection of money in favor, often, of a system of barter. Now, it's no small wonder that most communes do not last for very long. Even though they may be voluntary, they simply can't work. Such systems pale in comparison to the benefits of a Western lifestyle, the labor-saving technologies, the comfort, the luxuries, not to mention the improved sanitation and personal hygiene, <laughs> which mm -hmm. I'm sure was probably a problem in these <laughs> communes back in the back in the 70s. Well, I heard stories. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know. I think we have a have mutual ever, friend. Ever go, ever go to one of those <laughs> those rock concerts where all the hippies and everybody got together and see how the bathrooms were run? Oh, then? No, I can't say that I well, have, but I saw nightmares. I saw the, the documentary on Woodstock, and I certainly would not have wanted to be be there. Uh, commun communing is anti-life. It's anti-man. It's a rejection of what makes man, man. That is reason. Metaphysically, it rejects a knowable and provable reality, accepting instead, and on faith, some indefinable magical quality in nature. Epistemologically, it rejects reason, accepted instead an intuitive knowledge one can only gain by turning off the mind. What was that... Um, Timothy Leary, you know, turn, turn off, tune, tune in, tune and in, drop tune out. In, drop out, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was the kind of attitude of the, of the day. I mean, you weren't supposed to learn by actually using your mind. You were supposed to learn by turning it off. Bizarre. <laughs> the morality or the ethics of the back to nature group is a hodgepodge of anything goes, which is the natural consequence, by the way, of a metaphysics, which rejects reality and an epistemology, which rejects reason. Politically, it's a collectivist, 
um, culture, and it's a, a close cousin to any and all of the collectivist governments which have meted out so much destruction upon the world in its history. Aesthetically, and I'm going to spend some time on this, aesthetically the back-to-nature hippie communes gave us discordant music and lyric rambling of the person like a Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, and the incomprehensible drippings and splotches of a Jackson Pollock. I'd like to freeze-frame the late 1960s and compare the art and the music of the hippie culture and the commune-ists with the much more rational, romantic realists from that same period. Art does imitate life, and art and music flows naturally, or logically, if you will, from one's philosophy and sense of life. By comparing the art and the music of the two diametrically opposed philosophies of the hippie, Wiccan, communists, with the rational, romantic, individualists, um, should be uh, instructive. So mm-hmm. let's look at, in 1969, um, Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart, and his magic band lived communally in Los Angeles and produced an album, um, I think with the help of uh, Frank Zappa, uh, who also, by the way, gave Captain Beefheart that uh, moniker, <laughs> Captain <laughs> Beefheart. <laughs> and uh, they produced an album called Trout Mask Replica, Replica. And a song called Neon Meat Dream of a Octofish. The lyrics of which of which went like this. And I take this, by the way, just as an example, because it stuck out in my mind, um, having heard it way back in the okay. 70s myself. So I always thought it was a sort of iconic of that hippie-type culture. Now, here are the lyrics. Just um, two parts. Just, just to warn you, you know, I liked some of the music at Woodstock. <laughs> did you? Oh, no, no. <laughs> and, and I liked... Hey, so did I. And, and who did you say that you were talking about there? Who named the other guy? Um, Frank Zappa. Frank, I liked a lot of the stuff Frank Zappa did. He yeah, was but clever. what did Frank... Well, I mean, just look at one of his most famous ones was um, oh, Dynamo Hum. Now, I don't want to... Oh, I don't, know I don't want to go the lyrics. Well, okay. I don't want to do the lyrics of <laughs> Dynamo Hum here, but um, just let me say that they're not very tasteful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hum. Okay. But here's the lyrics of um, Neon Meat Dream of a Octofish, at least the first two... Uh, phrases. Lucid tentacles test and sleeved and joined and jointed, jade-pointed diamond back patterns, neon meat dream of a octafish, artifact on rose petals and flesh petals in pots, fact and feast in tubes, tubs, bulbs, ingest, incest, ingest, injust, in feast, incest, and specks and speckled, speckled, speckled speculation. Make any sense out of that, Bob? Yes. Oh, really? Please yeah. tell. Well, there's no sense. It was just loose association. Totally exactly. floating, abstract association. So those two, those two words have, start with the same letters, or they sound the same. But mm-hmm. that's as far as it went. There was no cohesion to any... There's no grammar in, in those sentences. <laughs> let's put it that way. Exactly. <laughs> but I it think, made sense to me. It yeah, it went me, on. It told me he's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it went on and on, but I think you get the gist. Yeah, I get it. Now, compare that... With the lyrics of Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town, written by Mel Tillis and uh, recorded by Kenny Rogers and popularized mm, in 69. Now, I picked that one. I actually, when I wanted to compare um, the that Captain Beefheart song. One, that was a, that oh, was, it was. That was an emotionally yeah, affecting song. Very much so. But I looked at the top 100 songs of 1969, trying to find something that sort of was the antithesis of the Captain Beefheart. Um, neon meat dream mm-hmm. of an uh, octafish. 
And it was very hard. I mean, the number two song from 1969 was um, that Age of Aquarius thing, right. you know. And uh, a lot of them were just like that. They were nonsensical nonsensical music it was not uh, contrary to what a lot of people think i think that 1969 was not necessarily a good era for music at least not popularly you know it ha- it existed out there but it wasn't very popular but this one stuck out it was ruby it, it made the top 100 and um, here's the lyrics from that and i'm sure everybody will recognize this one you know you've painted up your lips and rolled and curled your tinted hair ruby are you contemplating going out somewhere the shadow on the wall tells me the sun is going down. Oh, Ruby, don't take your love to town. It wasn't me that started that old crazy Asian war, but I was proud to go and do my patriotic chore. And yes, it's true that I'm not the man I used to be, but Ruby, I still need some company. It goes on, but basically what you have is a, a Vietnam war vet mm-hmm. uh, who lost his legs and he's an invalid, and he's losing his wife because of it. And it's a very sad song, man. And it, and it ends with him asking her just to turn around and come back, but it ends like that without her doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's very sad. Now, in painting, um, compare those drippings and splashes of paint by the Jackson Pollock. Now, I, uh, it's very hard to describe if nobody's ever seen a Jackson Pollock, but it's basically if you took paint and just splashed it on a canvas. Yeah, we've all seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, again, it's much like the Captain Beefheart, except this is painting. <laughs> um, now compare that, though, with the realistic painting of a Norman Rockwell. Now, everybody out there has seen Norman Rockwell paintings. Now, he did a painting in 1969 of astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon, descending from the lunar excursion model, module. Um, and he called it the final impossibility, man's tracks on the moon. Now, I understand that Rockwell, also opposed, by the way, the Vietnam War, he depicted soldiers in his paintings as nothing but heroes, mm-hmm. you know, coming home. Wasn't there one called The Homecoming? You know, um, mostly of World War II vets, but um, still uh, around that same time of the Vietnam War, he depicted soldiers as heroes. And rather, you know, um, rather than be a pacifist, as many of the hippie cultures were, Rockwell actually raised over 130 million dollars for the World War II war effort in bonds when he put his paintings mm-hmm. on display t- touring the country. So here you have the comparison, you know, musically and visually in the painting of a philosophy of the collective, of the mystic, and of the irrational and unknowable hippies, culture, back to nature, versus a philosophy that you and I espouse, Bob, a philosophy of individuals, of reality, and of science and reason. So I, I leave it out there for the listener to judge um, and to value both those cultures and, and, and to come up with a, a decision. Which is the more valuable? Collectivist versus individual. Back to nature versus science and technology in Western culture. You know, I think that the um, it's, it's, it's an obvious thing. Now, the clips coming up, you're going to listen to um, a woman. <clears throat> I found this on YouTube trying to get something which would... Um, exemplify the Wicca culture, the back to... It's uh, painful, Robert. To listen to it, you heard that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is it is painful. Uh, she's a, a priestess. Um, she introduces herself, so I, I'll leave that to her. Phyllis, someone that didn't get, catch the full name. Yeah, but um, just listen to the language she uses and, and, the, and what she's trying to impress upon you uh, about her culture and 
Have in mind that this has been done before. We called it hippies back in the 60s and 70s. She's calling it, uh, she's a Wicca priestess right now, but the more things change, the more things stay the same. Have a listen. Hi, my name is Phyllis Curat. I am a Wiccan priestess, the founder of the Ara tradition. Uh, my favorite subject when I talk about Wicca is nature. Nature as the embodiment of the sacred. For us, uh, the natural world is our, it's our greatest spiritual teacher because it is uh, the divine. It is the gown the goddess puts on in order to be seen. It's the dance that the god does in order to engage us. It is uh, uh, it is replete with spiritual wisdom for us, which uh, Western culture has largely forgotten. We uh, come from a culture that that is separated from nature, separated from the sacred. God is transcendent. He is beyond. He is um, in heaven. He created the earth, but he left. He returned through his son, Jesus, and he left. And God was, God gave uh, humanity dominion over the earth. In other words, we've been treating it like a combination warehouse and um, garbage dump for the last few thousand years. And uh, we have been abusing the divine. We have been blind and deaf oblivious to the innate uh, sacrality, the innate sacredness of the natural world in which we live. Um, and as a result, uh, we have become unnatural ourselves. So by working in harmony with nature, by learning from it, um, by uh, uh, practicing um, uh, rites and rituals in uh, conjunction with the phases of the moon, especially for women, in, in conjunction with the phases of uh, the sun, the relationship of the sun and the earth, uh, we bring ourselves into harmony. We begin to see our own lives in the context of the, the rhythm of the cycle of life as it plays out around us in the natural world. And by bringing ourselves into harmony with that natural rhythm, we begin to see that there is also a tremendous sacred wisdom that is revealed to us. It tells us how to live in a practical way, and it tells us how to live in a sacred way, in a spiritual way. Um, and the essence of being a wise one, of being a Wiccan, of being a witch, of, of practicing um, this spirituality, because it's a spiritual practice, um, is to see, to hear, to taste, to touch, to know, to commune, and to be at one with uh, the divine as it expresses itself in the natural world. So what exactly does it mean to commune with nature? The online Merriam-Webster defines the verb to commune as, quote, to communicate with someone or something in a very personal or spiritual way, unquote. The same source defines nature as, quote, the external world in its entirety, unquote. And dictionary.com definition for nature is um, anything but man, basically. So how does one communicate with anything but man or something that is not man? Well, unless you're a higher order animal like a dog or a gorilla, which you can communicate with quite easily, I think, you don't. To commune with nature is meaningless as a phrase. It's meaningless. One does not commune with a tree, a rock, a waterfall, or insects. One can certainly appreciate nature, you know, 
to communicate with it? No. You can also learn from nature, but one can't learn from nature by sitting and contemplating your navel. One learns from nature by a process of observation, formulating hypotheses, and by experimentation, i.e. by the scientific method. The method with the, uh, the problem with the scientific method, at least to many, is that it requires work. It requires time, and it requires dedication. It's not something readily given, but is the result of effort. The back-to-nature people reject this. They want to take the lazy way, which will end up being a dead end if knowledge about nature is their goal. What has a Wiccan or a hippie ever learned from nature that would benefit their life on Earth? Nothing. Whenever I venture into the wilderness, and I have quite often, I make sure that I take bug spray, an EpiPen, a knife, a bear whistle, an adequate clothing to protect myself from ticks and mosquitoes and black flies and rain and hail and snow and sleet, a flashlight against the dark, and matches to start a fire, or at least three fires to direct the rescue helicopters to my location. (laughs) That's what I think of nature, but I do like nature too. But nature can be cruel and unforgiving, but I make the mistake here of personifying nature by saying that it can be cruel and unforgiving. Nature is what it is. It is not cruel. It is not unforgiving. It is what it is. Nature has a nature, (laughs) if you know what I mean by that. Well, (laughs) you can only talk about it in its own terms. That that is its nature. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Nature is not... Nature is about properties, not about... uh, It's a thing, yeah. uh, You know, it's a given. Mm Mm-hmm. Existence exists. What exists is nature. Mm-hmm. Even outer space is part of nature, though we don't think of that. We only think of planetary nature, yeah. the global nature. And I reject dictionary.com's definition. I think nature uh, is part of man, and man is part of nature. I well, mean, we are I natural. Was, I was going to say that, you know, we're of not course. a separate part of nature. No. You know, when I do make the mistake, and it's very easy to make the mistake of personifying something, right, by by saying it is cruel and and unforgiving, but it's not conscious. Nature is not conscious. The biosphere of Earth is not a conscious entity. It's comprised of many living entities, some of which are conscious, but as a whole, it's an impersonal, unconscious collection of millions of life forms and inanimate objects, which, taken as a whole, we simply call nature, much as in the same way we use the word society, which, in truth, does not even exist, but is simply our way of calling the sum total of individual humans in any given area. Interesting you use that example because you were talking about the rock rock music of the past. And I remember Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull wrote mm-hmm. a song that's beautifully poetic called yeah. Saucity, You're a Woman. Mm-hmm. And Saucity was his name for society. Ah, uh-huh, right? really? Yes, very good. And all the way through, it's a consistency. Saucity, you're a woman dressed in straight lace and pretending, you know, you're this, but you're really this other thing, right? Yeah. But yeah, I see your point. Yeah, just, just go back to Jethro Tull and, and that era. That, that, it reminds me of why I wanted to compare, you know, Ruby or the mm-hmm. Jethro Tulls or even the Beatles or, no, or it offers or some a contrast. Of the, contrast. the contrast is this: that music was lyrical, it was rhythmic, it had harmonies, right? It required effort. Once again, it required effort to produce that. While the ramblings of the Captain Beefheart, I don't think required any effort at all. It was. Um, what did you call it? Association. Just a loose association. Word association yeah. stuff. I mean, that didn't require any effort whatsoever. It was a lazy way to produce music, if you want to call it that. But anyway, I digress. Um, we were back to communing with nature. I mean, 
that, that I think is hippie speak. Um, for I'd rather try and talk to a rain cloud than another human being. It was what they call at the time a cop-out. <laughs> <laughs> I recently had a pleasant discussion with a young woman who believed that trees are conscious and feel pain and can sense human emotions. Her belief stemmed from reading a single book on the subject. Um, unfortunately, the name of the author escapes me. Um, however, the, the, and whoever the charlatan was, um, I think he's corrupted the mind of uh, this young woman and many young people who in their in their search for truth, in their genuine... Um, ignorance in their genuine uh, search for truth find drivel like this the, you know the creators of my car or my cell phone or a pencil understand nature much more than any hippie or tree hugger just imagine the depth of knowledge required to create a cell phone the depth of the, the communion between the, the man and nature to, re, to, to produce a cell phone Mm-hmm. or a car one person alone does not possess the knowledge to create such a device it is the combined effort of millions of people the scientists who develop the knowledge about how electricity works and can be stored in batteries and transmitted through the year the miners who mine the metals necessary to create the device the engineers who piece it together in such small packages the financiers who find the money to start the production for a cell phone the marketers who make us want to buy it, the the truckers who deliver it to my door. The activity, both mental and physical, required to build a cell phone is a ballet of man and nature in harmony. That's my back to nature right there, a cell phone. Nature, to be commanded, must be obeyed. And that's a quote from Francis Bacon, who may have been the first to truly commune with nature in the sense that I'm talking about. He was an empiricist, a scientist, and a lover of knowledge, and by that he was a lover of nature. Bacon also said, quote, knowledge that tendeth but to satisfaction is but as a courtesan, which is for pleasure and not for fruit or generation, unquote. Meaning, of course, in our discussion at least, that nature can certainly be appreciated, but that's simply not enough. Just as pleasure is not enough, one must be fruitful, one must be productive, one must take what one learns of nature and put it to use. It's simply of no use sitting in the woods, contemplating nature and trying to commune with the inanimate. What an endeavor, you know, of, of what a waste of time, what a waste of a human mind. Now to the hippies, come Wiccans, come communists out there, I say, give your heads a shake, people. Wake up out of your delusional daydream. Compare your life of indolence and perpetual flower-smelling to the productive, successful lives of those of us who understand nature at a much more and deeper level than you do, and put that understanding to use for yourself and ourselves. Try to understand your own nature as a man, and that it is man's nature to understand and use the rest of nature for his own purposes. Well, speaking of a search for truth, Robert... You know, how can so-called imperfect human beings ever be expected to arrive at anything so grandiose as the proverbial truth? To help us kick off our topic for the next half of the show, even before we've asked the big question, we turn once again to Professor Daniel Robinson, uh, from whose series The Great Ideas of Philosophy the following originates. A squared plus B squared equals C squared was a truth that predates human history. 
you wouldn't ask the question, on what date did the Pythagorean theorem become valid? It's a truth that will remain when the last human being has disappeared from the face of the earth. Now, what is it about the soul that can allow it to make contact with a truth of that kind? What is it about our rationality that can make contact with something like that? Well, you begin to see immediately that it can't be something about the psychology of the individual that is perceptual that's going to be able to do this. It can't be the retina that's doing this. Surely Pythagoras did not arrive at that theorem by laying his measuring rod along various right-angle triangles, happily and luckily finding the first one to be a three, four, five triangle, which, which would make the arithmetic come out quite neatly. It would be unlikely that measurement would generate such a theorem. Similarly, with pi, you don't come up with 3.1416 forever and ever and ever as a result of some experiential undertaking. The search for truth is a search that can only be undertaken once one has defeated or at least neutralized the most cogent of sophist and skeptical claims against the very possibility of truth. There's no final and telling defeat of skepticism in every form. But there are fairly good counters to the more worrisome skeptical claims. Now, if we take the position that mathematics is just the right model for getting at the truth, capital T, that is the that truth inevitably refers to that which is an unchanging form, we may make progress in dealing with all of the problems of knowledge. So if the skeptic says, how can you possibly stand behind the proposition that there is such a thing as unchanging truth? Well, one reply will present the truths of mathematics. There really do seem to be things that can be known certainly, and mathematics has established that these things can be known with certainty, so the problem of knowledge now becomes understood as a search for the kinds of truths that will match up with mathematical certainties. Not an experiential enterprise, but a rational enterprise. And what form must this rational enterprise take? It takes a form which, in the Greek, is referred to as the alenkis, a dialectical or argumentative approach, but not argumentative at the level of rhetoric. It's a bona fide search for truth, not a search for victory. Aristotle reserves to human beings a psychic power or faculty of a very special kind, reason. But the word he uses in the treatise on the soul is not the Greek nous or logos for reason. Rather, it is epistemonikon. But by epistemonikon, one would ordinarily be referring to the means or the power, the cognitive ability by which we comprehend universal propositions. It's a special feature of rationality. It fits us out uniquely for, among other things, the rule of law itself. After all, what is the rule of law except the ability to apply some universal precept to what is an indefinitely large number of individual instances, each qualifying as, for example, theft? It is in virtue of this rationality that we become fit for a mode of political and social life, a mode of civic life, otherwise unavailable to other types within the kingdom of life, types lacking this rational power. 
You're listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5.11 Omegahertz, where Robert and I are talking about how to know whether or not you can trust anything that we're saying on this show. Right, Robert? Yes. Very interesting comments from Professor Robinson, wouldn't you say? As a matter of fact, I was enthralled by listening to him as a... He is an Aristotelian, no doubt. Oh, absolutely. And there's so much more to add on what I learned from him in terms of everything from cause and consequence that I think we're going to investigate more in the future. And what started all this? Well, we got a letter from one of our you know, favorite listeners, Murray, who wrote us uh, in our feedback uh, letter to us. And he said he was wondering if he could ask a question. And it was a doozy. And we based our show on it. It's what we do here. So, Murray, here is our attempt at answering your question. And you wrote uh, about a week ago, uh, you said you've really been pondering epistemology the last couple of weeks and have been researching objectivism. And you write, I'm currently reading Teaching Johnny to Think and re-listen to old episodes of Just Right after searching the subject and found some really great stuff. But I don't feel I have really found the answer, or maybe have I? I just posted this comment to Facebook to a typical rant by a progressive acquaintance of mine. His rant was in response to my post of a Rothbard quote in a fee article. Would you mind reading it and providing some feedback? And that's what we're going to do, Murray. Your, your, your question certainly was a universal one, something worth exploring further and in greater depth, and that's what we're going to do. And he wrote, and this is uh, due to conversations he said he had on, on Facebook and elsewhere, and he writes, and I quote, One was a disturbing, talking about two conversations, one was a disturbing conversation I had on Facebook where facts were presented at the insistence of the other person, and this other person arrived at radically different conclusions than I did, then accused me of not presenting the facts. Grr. (laughs) (laughs) The one was a conversation with my wife, where I was reading a book one night, which had some interesting info I shared. I asked her what she thought about it, and she said, Quote, well, the guy writing your book wants to believe something, so he'll slant all his information in that direction, where if you read something by someone else, it can just as easily be slanted the other way. There is an element of truth to that. Well, there is. But these two conversations raised a few questions. How do, we co- how do we come to know what we know? How is human knowledge acquired? How can I tell the difference between a belief and actual knowledge? How do I know who to believe? How can I know the truth? Well, it turns out I'm not the only, not not only the first being on the planet to have asked these questions, he writes. Actually, I think everyone has had this conversation. As it turns out, there's actually a science that studies and discovers the answers to these questions. It's called philosophy, and the specific area is called epistemology. So far, he's right on target. He's doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. Here is a definition from Webster's, he continues. The study of a theory of the nature and grounds of knowledge, especially with reference to its limits and validity. So I've been doing some research, and this has been heavy on my mind since then, he writes. I won't get into all of it here, but the bottom line is that knowledge is most definitely acquirable, but not just a simple accumulation of fact. Technical side note, there are philosophies that disagree with this assertion. (laughs) There you go again. Knowledge is acquirable by integrating facts into our personal system of principles and concepts that we have acquired throughout our lives. If those premises are incorrect or inconsistent, you'll come to the incorrect and inconsistent conclusion when presented with facts. On any subject, there is only one truth. Platonic thinking will say different, but when you break things down to their core, there's only black and white. Gray is just a combination of the two. So when contradictions are encountered, we need not only check our facts, but also our principles and concepts. A new concept may be required, an old one discarded. 
Platonic thinking, as evidenced in the statement, who really knows, would say that knowledge is infinite and therefore not completely knowable, so why even try? I choose to have more hope than that and choose to express strong opinions only on things I know enough about. If I want to have a strong opinion on something, I acquire the knowledge first, not the other way around. That's one of my principles. He's doing great so far. So far, so good. Okay. But back to what do you believe? No one but you, continues Murray. This is another principle, but it comes with a responsibility to acquire the knowledge which leads to checking your premises, as outlined above. Deferring to an authority by taking their word for something because they're a guru is not a sound way to think. Actually, it bears a striking resemblance to religion, doesn't it? Again, more platonic thinking. So deferring to authority by saying, who do we believe, is really saying, I choose to remain ignorant. I'm okay with that, but I'm asking, if you choose to remain so, why are you voicing not an opinion followed by curiosity, but a strong opinion followed by none? I think this is a fair question, and I think that is amazingly worded, Murray. Congratulations, you really said it well. And he says, another way of stating the same willful ignorance is to say one source's bias is offset by another bias, so who knows the truth and why bother looking any further? This effectively means there's too much information to sort through. So I choose not to put the effort in to find the truth. Yet again, not a problem till people hold a strong opinion of the subject. Can you see how this would be very annoying to someone who A, doesn't express strong opinions about things he doesn't know about, and B, actually has done a lot of the work to understand the topics that the opinionated people so obviously know very little about, <laughs> right? So, yet I am the one accused of arrogance, he writes. Now, isn't that exactly what you heard Andy Utman call, say about me in, in our Christmas, yes. or in our New Year's Eve special, you know, yes. when they talk about it? And it's not about, he, he wasn't calling me arrogant because he thought, I, he, he actually thought I was right. And he, and he acknowledged that, but by being right, you're being arrogant, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's a telling statement. Why does that come? We're, we're going to be talking about that. On the last thing, metaphysics. He says, metaphysics per Wikipedia is a branch of philosophy that deals with the first principle of things, including abstract concepts such as being, knowing, substance, cause, identity, time, and space. In a nutshell, it is a study of the physical world and answers questions such as, do I exist? Is the world real? Is this really a table in front of me or just a figment of my imagination? Plato believed that existence does not exist. Now there, I think, that's a little fuzzy. He, he did believe existence existed. But we could not see the true but, nature of it. But we could it. not see the true nature of it. That's, yes, that's, um, it's not just a figment of your imagination. He believed in what is called duality, which says there is another world, which again means an existent of some sort. Another dimension unknown to us mere humans. And not only unknown, but unknowable. That's the key, right? Yeah. And he says this is very much like religion, etc., etc. He says, and he says, I don't know where this will finally lead. I don't know. Blissfully, happy and content, I guess. Paradise, just what you were talking about, Robert. <laughs> Can you see how this philosophy would lead a person to believe that true and complete knowledge is unattainable? Knowledge of what? This made-up world we live in? Or the next quote-unquote true world? Aristotle believed that the physical world is real, and that we not only can understand it using our reason, senses, and logic, but it is our moral duty to understand it. Uh, it's essential to life on Earth. The beauty of objectivism, and Ayn Rand, is that she proves this fact through logic and reason. If you take the time to understand what she was really saying, instead of Googling her to get someone else to provide you with their opinion. 
<laughs> you know, you can argue with it with me about it, he said, and slander ran too, but I would reread re Murray Rothbard's quote, which of course is about, if you don't know what you're talking about, don't say anything. Of course, and Murray says, Rothbard yeah. was certainly not the first person to say that. No, no, and, and I myself have said that many times. Mm -hmm. So that's basically, in a nutshell, the question that Murray's asking us, and it's a profound question. We talk about it all the time on this show. But my first question, Murray, would be directed towards your wife. And I don't know that it would be wise for you to do this, because you might want to stay married. <laughs> <laughs> but how did she come to determine her truth that, quote, the guy writing your book wants to believe something, so he'll just slant all his information in one direction, where if you read someone something by someone else, they'll, they'll slant it the other way. How did she arrive at that truth? I have come across that exact argument so many times when somebody accuses me of being arrogant, of knowing, or being oh, yes. a know-it-all, or whatever. Well, how do you know that I'm not a know-it-all? Then you must know the opposite. You exactly. must know that I'm wrong. What facts do you have to show that I'm wrong? That makes you right. And then if you're right, aren't you being as arrogant as you're claiming that I am? Exactly. <laughs> so, it's, that is the question. She put it in a nutshell. And her question is a reflection of what we are all taught in schools. <laughs> Ironically, that nothing is certain, that nothing is knowable, and one man's opinion is as valid as another's. Everything's equal, right? And most people accept this falsehood as truth. And with that, we turn back to some of the thoughts of Professor Robinson. At this point, however, it's important to distinguish between knowledge as an awareness of mere facts in the world and the enduring truths that stand behind what are otherwise mere appearances. But truth is something different from fact. Recall the Pythagorean position. Truth is that which does not change. It is that which is eternal. It's not part of the ephemera of daily experience. It's something that abides. What is true must always have been true. It always will be true. Therefore, it is removed from the domain of purely sensory experience. It's removed from the domain of mere materiality. So this is now truth with a capital T, as opposed to facts with a lowercase f. Such knowledge, knowledge of this kind of truth, could not possibly come about by way of perception. Everything that is material is constantly in a state of flux. Heraclitus put it very well. No one descends twice into the same river. Now, the Heraclitian theory of the fluxes is a theory about the constant changing nature of what we would call the real world. To accept this is to be skeptical in the matter of perceptually based knowledge. You do know at the outset that nothing with pattern and design is going to come about accidentally. As Aristotle says in his treatise on physics, if the art of shipbuilding were in the wood, we would have ships by nature. Now let me repeat that. If the art of shipbuilding were in the wood, there would just be something about wood such that if you left it around long enough, a great ancient Greek trireme would develop. Sails there and oars and oarsmen, do you see? Leather sails, all of that. No, says Aristotle, you do not get ships that way. Leave wood out for a very long time and you get rotten wood. The art of shipbuilding is not in something intrinsic to wood. You may need wood to make ships. 
But wood just enters in as the material cause of a ship. You need all sorts of workmen to know where to put the dowels and the sails and the rudder. But they serve here as modes of efficient causation, as instruments serving some purpose of which they might be entirely ignorant. The art of shipbuilding is finally in the ship's designer. It is the designer who knows what ships are for and how that purpose is served by the right material rightly assembled. To know in this sense is to comprehend far more than anything conveyed by the mere material composition of an object. Aristotle does argue that a thoroughly scientific explanation is one that includes a universal principle of which the thing to be explained is an instance. But when Aristotle is writing on biological subjects as opposed to purely physical ones, when he's writing on biological and particularly on psychological and social matters, he inserts a qualifier, almost like a place mark. The expression in the Greek is hosepitopoli, which is best rendered as, for the most part, by and large or in general. Obviously, if there is variability in the phenomenon itself, the best explanation will not, will not hide from it. Aristotle teaches us to expect precision only to the extent that a subject allows it and to seek no more precision than what the subject at hand will admit of. So when it comes to these phenomena, those complex social, political, and moral events, what we look for are general precepts, which are right by and large, in general, and for the most part. Read in a certain light, this is a rather liberating conception in relation to the teachings of the Academy. Well, some very interesting introspection there. You, you know, I, I learned so much from Professor Robinson, Robert, and it's a, it's a field I want to go into on a future show, some of the things he touched upon there, especially the causal modalities. We always talk about cause, and it, it gets into religious consequences, you know, first cause. Mm -hmm. But when you get into a study of this, you discover there's the first cause, a material cause, an efficient cause, the final cause, right? And they all work together. And that's why I think when uh, I was reading from John McMurray earlier in our Just Right series, a long time ago, um, he was suggesting, and it was the first time I ran into the idea, that there's no such thing as a cause of anything. It all depends on what you're actually looking at things backwards when you're when you're talking that way because you have to look back knowing what the end product of the cause was, which never ends. It'll change again. So here's the key. You know, speaking of John McMurray, this is from Freedom in the Modern World, and we've dealt with this before. And he suggests that the that you don't spend your time looking for truth. You spend your time looking for reality, and then truth will take care of itself. And he says, real thinking starts with questions which are real, which are forced on us by the pressure of experience, but are not experiential, as we heard, and it proceeds hand in hand with experience leaning on the facts. Now, Murray said the same thing in some of his earlier, right, you know, buried within his own question. He says, there's one sure way of discover, discovering whether our generalizations are real or not, and that is to stop and ask, for example, it's remarkable how often people can't give you an example of what they mean, says McMurray. And he says there's another way in which thinking can be unreal. 
The quest may be a real one, and it may be thought about in a real way, and the thinking may reach a true conclusion. But we stop there. We resolutely resolutely (laughs) refuse to let the opinion we hold influence our behavior in any way. We're afraid of the consequences, perhaps. But more frequently, we're simply not interested in the application of our opinions. You know, you could think of uh, heavy smokers and drinkers might come to mind there. You know, they know, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Logically, they arrive at that conclusion, but it doesn't affect their behavior. And you see it in politics all the time. Oh, I hate to vote for the lesser of three evils, but I'm going to do it anyway, (laughs) right? And then they wonder, huh, still ended up with evil. How did that happen? He says, that is when we say that a man doesn't really believe in what he professes. All thought that is not meant to go beyond its conclusions to some application is unreal thought, and unreal thought is a monstrosity. Now, this particular unreality, mischievous and monstrous as it is, has been erected as an, as an ideal for thought. We talked about this before, remember, Robert? It's the ideal of knowledge for knowledge's sake. There's no significance whatever in knowing things just for the sake of knowing them and nothing more. The search for knowledge is either the search for that which has a significance in human life, or it's a relapse into unreality. Why then have we come to regard knowledge as good in itself? Because we're afraid of the terrible power of thought to change the world in which we live in, to to destroy our illusions, to force us to alter our habits and social arrangements. The training of our minds should from the very start be a training in reality, but alas, our educational system has its own inertia and resists strongly. We still force our young people to learn all sorts of things. We call it acquiring knowledge, which have no significance for them and which never have any. For many, the effect is mischievous. It makes them hate thinking and it actually makes them stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He wrote that back in the 1930s, you know? Now, here's the other big thing people are afraid of when it comes to the whole issue of being right and being wrong and knowledge and what is true. And it's the fear of being wrong. Everybody's afraid of being wrong. And he says, if you're afraid of being wrong, well, then you have to be unreal. Now, that's an amazing statement. If you stop and think about that just alone. That's why so many people want somebody else to tell them what they ought to believe. It's almost like saying that you're wrong for wanting to think that you can't be right all the time, you know, in case you're wrong. Yes. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes, (laughs) and they want an infallible authority who will secure them against the risk of error. This explains so much in human behavior from religions on down. But he says, unreal thinking has no chance of discovering whether it is true or false. Real thought is marked by its readiness to change its mind as the increase of experience reveals its inadequacy. Unreal thought is far more fixed and self-consistent. It refuses to admit that it can be wrong. It twists or ignores the evidence that is forced upon it. Now think about that, uh, Marie, when you're talking to your wife next time. (laughs) (laughs) All its consistency and stability is only a proof that it is dead, not that it is true. Truth is an ultimate byproduct of real thinking. It is not so much truth that our minds are after as significant truth. Truth that has no vital significance is unreal and a mere nuisance. It is reality that matters, and if we take care of that, our thought, or take care that our thought is real, truth will take care of itself, he says. So in other words, he's saying that, you know, don't aim at the truth. That's always a preconception. Aim at reality, and the truth will take care of itself. How else are you going to arrive at it, right? 
And he says, so long as you think you know the truth, so long as you believe it has been revealed and is guaranteed, thinking is unnecessary and at best an amusement, like solving a crossword puzzle. When people stop thinking or refuse to think, they begin to clutch at anything to save them. And, the turn all, and they turn always to power, especially to organized power. They want an authority to take the burden of responsibility off their shoulders. They become formalists in religion and in morality. They get excited about money and position because they want to be safe and secure. They want everyone to agree with them because then they feel safe in their beliefs. That is when the false morality of obedience to law becomes rampant. You see that so much in what we would call the right wing, strangely enough, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, don't give me the details. I don't know, want to know how to get there, but by gosh, we got to obey the law. Well, it's the same with the left wing. I mean, well, people, point, but people are like Justin Trudeau and they think he's infallible. He can do that wrong. Yeah, but he's more of a guru. Not, he's not talking law and order in that sense, you mm. know, the way the right wingers do. But um, now Ayn Rand, uh, on her take on truth, she says, truth is the recognition of reality and reason is man's only means of knowledge and his only standard of truth. The truth or falsehood of all man's conclusions, inferences, thought, and knowledge rest on the truth or falsehood of his definitions. And this is important. Um, you know, I see this principle at play constantly in politics, especially on the wrong definition of capitalism that most people yes. are taught. Yes. When most people who complain about our social and economic conditions today blame it on capitalism, they're jumping from their own frying pan into their own fire by voting for more of the problem because they're voting for the socialist parties that they think are going to bring the change when socialism is what they already have and they think they're getting rid of. And it's what and what's screwing them up so bad and so majorly? The mere definition of a single word. Yep. That is the power of epistemology. And if you control the definitions of, you know, define or be defined, and that is how our minds work. It's not just about communicating, it's about thinking and how we arrive at conclusions. So Rand concludes, truth is the identification of a fact of reality. Whether the fact in question is metaphysical or man-made, the fact determines the truth. If the fact exists, there is no alternative in regard to what is true. For instance, the fact that the U.S. has 50 states was not metaphysically necessary. But as long as this is men's choice, the proposition that the U.S. has 50 states is necessarily true. A true proposition must describe the facts as they are. In this sense, a necessary truth is a redundancy, and a contingent truth a self-contradiction. Then she concludes, consider the catchphrase, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. The purpose of that catchphrase, and remember this, Murray, is the destruction of objectivity. The phrase means, A, that the law of identity is invalid. For example, a cat can be a dog or it can be a house. It's all the same. And B, that there is no reality in which, in, you know, in which case there can be no truth. Or C, that the two debaters perceived two different universes, in which case no debate is possible, which is the case in all subjectivist philosophies, like religions which are constantly in conflict and turmoil with each other to the extent that reality has been removed from their belief systems. So, any, any thoughts on that, Robert? Uh, you know, I, I think that's pretty much the direction that Murray should be looking in. Oh, no, and well said. It's just that um, I was thinking when you were talking there, um, the truth is, is different for me than it is for you. That to me is, and I'll use the word again as you use in the first half of the show, a cop-out. I think it, the motivation behind that is a laziness. Um, it's, a, it's an unwillingness 
to understand how the truth really is for everybody. When you say that, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. So that's an end of a discussion right there. Absolutely. And there's another factor that's at work, too. And, I, 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 you know, as you know, I do a lot of uncomfortable topics on this show, and that's because I'm trying to get at the truth. I'm not, I don't start with a conclusion. And I've had great discomfort, for example, over the Cosby story, which, which I covered last week and many shows before, and getting at the truth behind it, where I had to look at the facts. I couldn't ignore them, yet everyone else around me was ignoring them. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm the crazy guy And here, the definitions, right? for example, of the word consent. Yes. And so suddenly you're in this total um, conflict that you cannot resolve until those definitions are cleared up, until you both agreed to talk about the same thing. The truth behind the refugee crisis, which is not even identified properly at its outset, right? If you think it's a refugee crisis, you're going to look at it completely different than if you look at it as an immigration issue or worse, an invasion, mm-hmm. okay? And these things can only be determined by looking at the facts and what people are telling us. And often... People who make a decision are ignoring what what is being told them. You know, listen to them, some of us are saying, you know. Listen to what they're telling you. Or the truth behind global warming and climate change. There again, you have to look at the facts. And, and all of these things were very uncomfortable for me because all the conclusions I kept arriving at, talking to our guests on these issues, I had to arrive at a different conclusion than what I was hearing in the so-called popular press. So you can see the issues. And, uh, well, I guess that's it for our topic on truth. Uh, Just to clear up, you know, when we talk about our journey in the right direction, we're not talking about a journey toward truth, but a journey toward reality through the use of reason. For us, this show is a constant learning experience, and we're not here just to shove our points of view on people, because so often, how often do we start a a topic and end up on a totally opposite conclusion than we expect. Happens all the time. I've learned a lot from Mm -hmm. our guests and from you, Bob. I mean, when I first started this, what, seven, eight years ago, um, I didn't have the level of of knowledge that I have now. And and that's what everybody starts from is is ignorance. And and the knowledge never ends. Exactly. And, And Murray's question, Murray, just you're asking that question has set me off on another journey. I'm going to be looking more into, into Professor Robinson's things, and we're going to be talking more about this issue in the future. But for now, here's one truth we can't avoid because it's a fact. Our time for today is running to an end, and so we've got to get running ourselves. We'll be back next week, same time, same channel, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright What time is it, Schultz? 7.30, which is to see it is 1930 hours I think <laughs> Let me ask you a hypothetical question, Schultz No, because it has to do with you wanting to get out And you cannot get out I cannot get out Can I you? There are soldiers out there, real soldiers. With me, it is just a job. And they have orders to shoot both of us if we leave this room. So my answer is no. Wasn't the question, Schultz. No? No. Question of philosophy. Oh, philosophy. Let's assume you were going to die. Soon or not so soon? Within the next half hour. 
Colonel Hogan, please. Would you want to be told or not? I do not want to talk about the whole question. Okay, just asking. <laughs>